Hello, everyone. Welcome to Embodied Wellness. Um, my name is Marjorie. This is Milena. And we are talking to Beth Conan today, our first guest ever. Woohoo! Um, and we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of really interesting topics, but definitely something that I think both you and I touch on a lot, Milena, um, is we like to kind of talk about gender, but I feel like we, in terms of like, uh, like gender-based discrimination or sexism that we've experienced. Um, but it, I think it's going to be really great today to to chat to Beth, who has this whole wealth of knowledge and experience professionally, personally, uh, dealing with these things. So welcome, Beth. Hello. Welcome, Beth. Thank you for jumping up to Embody Wellness. Well, thank <laughs> you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> Yay. So just to get us started, Beth, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do, your field of expertise, all that good stuff? Of course. I'm predominantly a personal trainer, and I specialize in women's health, pre and postnatal fitness, and strength and conditioning. So a lot of what I do is gym-based workouts, um, working with women throughout pregnancy. You don't have to be pregnant, you can come to me at any point in your life but mm -hmm. I do specialize particularly with with women and um, again filling that gap market that we are kind of I mean we'll get into it absolutely but we kind of forgotten gender in many ways we are yeah. the other yeah so you, I work uh, oh yeah sorry yeah. oh no I predominantly work again filling that gap and just giving women confidence that, that they are not different mm -hmm. all human beings and there doesn't need to be a difference mm -hmm. could you highlight for us a few of the things that you've kind of noticed or like um just kind of shedding light on that gap that exists especially in like fitness wellness even just like biomedicine Mm -hmm. Again, there is there's so many misconceptions about women in fitness, particularly around pre and postnatal. Again, eight percent of registered PT hold a PT call without uh, a pre and postnatal qualification in the UK. It's absolutely an understudied area, and when you take into account, you know, fifty percent of the global population are female. Fifty percent of personal training clients are female. 85% of women will have a baby at some point in their life. Mm -hmm. right. you know, we are the majority. We should be the default. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, it is the default. And, you know, that's not malicious. They, you know, nobody decided that they would leave women out of the conversation. That is just the way the world has been for so many years. It is starting to change now. But there is, you do have these gaps in knowledge, in understanding, and again, trying to just fill those and let women understand that we do need to advocate for ourselves, that we are not fault. 
And when mm-hmm. you're not being taught, nothing is common, nothing is normal. So we do have to kind of fight for that understanding. Yes, yes, we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is really interesting too. I remember we had a conversation before we we did the podcast where you were telling me about things that I I had no idea about, like just these huge gaps, not just even in like uh, in the fitness sector, which is already kind of like appalling enough, but like things involving biomedical medicine, research, um, how even though it kind of almost sounds like uh, almost like it could be fairly tame to not be the default, like that someone might play devil's advocate and be like, oh, well, like what's really the big deal? about that but it can have these like huge far-reaching consequences Mm -hmm. not being considered in that way would you mind just sharing with our listeners like some of those crazy things you were telling me about (laughs) so I think the one that always gets me and I have to laugh because if I don't laugh I will cry about it there is only one female crash test dummy so as women, we're 47% more likely to be critically injured or killed in car accidents because the only female crash test dummy is built to male average height and weight, but she has a pair of breasts. Oh my God. And that's what makes her female. Mm. So when they test cars, they put the female crash test dummy in And she is the wrong height. She is the wrong weight. So when it crashes, it's a man with boobs that they're testing, not a woman. So weird. Isn't that? Yeah, that's wild. That's weird. Something so simple. And it's, uh, again, that's probably the one that blows my mind the most. Because it's such a simple change. Yeah. And you would also think that they would want to include like a spectrum of like Mm -hmm. to just account for the fact that like uh, there's many different like body types and sizes and you would think that you would have like multiple crash dummies to to do something but yeah just like in our in our daily life and our daily existence it's already Mm -hmm. made that bit more unsafe just by not having um, that kind of protection or being like an afterthought in that way. Yeah. Is, I mean, that's your kind of, I mean, day to day, you get in a car and you are more likely to be critically injured or killed. You know, mm-hmm. you go to your doctor, you tell him your symptoms. Nine times out of 10, they're going to tell you it's your menstrual cycle or it's stress. I've got that. Oh my gosh. Don't even. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that happened to me once. That happened to me. I, I was having a bit, uh, is that PTS? When you have a an infection in the urinary system? Yeah. Uh, UTI. UTI. Yeah, yeah. PTS. UTI. What's PTS? <laughs> UTI. I was having a UTI and then the, the ER doctor was just like, oh, but it's regular for women to get infections in that area. But, and, and it's, probably because of your menstrual cycle and i mean it he didn't even question me when was my last period or if i was drinking water 
Uh, uh-huh. He didn't ask. He just he just told me on his apparently um, super great knowledge that he thinks he has. I was having that because I am a woman. Just because we yeah. have a tendency to get because that's what he said. Oh, that's yeah. normal for women because you all have a tendency to get those infections. In, and that's it. He didn't yeah. ask me anything. He didn't explain anything. It was just that. Like, I was just feeling so bad because I, I, I was having a fever. It was a really, really bad infection. Jeez. And I just had to went to a different hospital to spend more money to be treated by a woman. And it was so different. So, mm-hmm. and she even yeah. changed the, the, the prescription She was like, why is he sending you a month of antibiotics? That's just going to kill your stomach. That's Jeez. terrible. So now that you, now Wait, that you said month? that. Oh, yes. <laughs> a that month? guy oh was completely God. out of his mind. That, he's mm. a doctor. That's, wow. that's mm-hmm. fucked up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, women, we, we were not legally required to be included in drug trials until the mid-90s. That gets me. Okay, that's the thing yeah. that you told me where I was like, uh-huh. wait, hold on a second. So, like, and that includes, like, if you really, if you think about that, too, I mean, medicine that then is meant for uh, women, basically, like, who, who was that being tested on? Was it being tested yeah. on? women and like women's systems and like like people's hormones are so different like people's hormones come in a range so it's really important to uh, uh basically um oh what's the word like you need to figure out that whole spectrum and be able to yeah. test along the spectrum to figure out mm-hmm. all these different how these medicines interact with different people's hormone levels mm-hmm. yeah because even reason- just within the binary it's it's messed up but then just picking like one one set of hormones over everybody else it's yeah oh my God. it is between 2001 and 2010 there were 304 different studies on treatment and prevention of breast and skin cancer mm-hmm. 60% of the um, participants were male okay and what 80% were white mm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. You know, um, I will not say it. Breast and skin cancer, they do affect men. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they do. They disproportionately affect women. And yet yeah. 60% of 304 studies, on average, were men. Oh, yeah. It, it is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Again, there was a, it was uh, early 90s, there was a pilot study done at Rockefeller University on the effects of obesity on uterine and breast cancer. Again, well, predominantly female. Um, just how many women do you think they were? I don't even want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. But oh everything, everything makes sense because you said mm-hmm. it was done in the Rockefeller University. It's like, oh, right, that's so happening for sure. Yeah. Well, the oh, effects of obesity on uh, zero. <gasps> oh no women I, I I lost that I'm sorry mm. so Absolutely no women no yeah women. no women were uh involved in that study 
Was that no. the correlation between obesity and breast cancer? Yep. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh-huh. That, yeah. So this is something that I was thinking about um, because I'm just doing like this foundational herbalist course that I just started. And it's really interesting because it talks about kind of this mapping of the history between uh, kind of like herbal medicine, which is like used to be, I mean, kind of the predominant means of people administering medicine. And then over time, like biomedicine and like uh, westernized medicine in that way has kind of eclipsed herbal medicine like in in the west not necessarily in the rest of the world but um it's still like something like 75 percent of the rest of the world still use or or uses herbal medicine as the preferred method um but it's only very recently that this shift happened where we've just decided that again disproportionately that like biomedical westernized medicine is the hallmark of like what good medicine is and that's terrifying to think that like so already there's problems within that but then that medicine that then is being either like sold or administered to us isn't even being thoroughly tested across a spectrum of genders no no i wish i could uh, i wish i could remember i read an article um it must have been early last year about the shift from your kind of herbal medicine to your westernized medicine. And Mm -hmm. it it comes down to, if I remember correctly, it was about, because we went through the shift of women being nurses and women being respected as caregivers and as like knowledgeable and they would tell patients and doctors, what they needed and they were very much the driving force behind Mm -hmm. um your kind of your herbals your your kind of like eastern european like this kind of this move away from drugs and medication yeah it was predominantly women and then it became honestly what i want to say is the men sat down and had a discussion i didn't like it a bit more to it than that. <laughs> but it then became this, we must have some kind of qualification that sets apart a doctor. And mm-hmm. because it was men who had the authority, they accepted other men to study. And it became essentially the old boys club. And women were then a lesser standard because they were just nurses mm-hmm. and that has kept going through western medicine that now we have again this disproportionate effect that men as doctors are seen as better than women who are just nurses yeah and it's, i wish i could remember the full the full story that is very much a brief overview and a very generalized overview of what might that includes some of my own biases but it was it came down to we need to authenticate what we're doing and we need we need to study and it was it was men sat at the table who decided this who recruited other men to study 
which just it perpetuates this dog whistle that women mm. are not good enough yeah that's oh my gosh yeah that's so interesting thinking about I mean, kind of now what we're seeing with, especially like even in this pandemic of like just the mm-hmm. extreme importance of nurses and how nurses mm-hmm. are, they are the ones at the forefront. And I know Milena, you don't, I don't know what Panama's doing, but for a oh, while, it's, yeah. yeah, for a while, the UK would on like a Thursday night, we would all applaud the NHS. And at some mm-hmm. point, this just became really, I felt, I mean, I felt kind of from the get-go, I was like, this feels insulting. Yes. Like, these, <laughs> like nurses are paid, like, a third of what mm-hmm. probably predominantly, like, male doctors yes. are paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're just, the thing that we're giving them is we're applauding them. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm sorry. It's, it's No, it's, it's the same thing It's happening in Panama, and people is... I mean, women are aware about it. Like, obviously, are always the women who are um, pointing out our differences in society, right? And and for sure, this pandemic has just like removed the the thin layer that people was ignoring about the gender mm-hmm. discrimination. That was like, no, but what are women fighting for? You can vote, you're free to do what you want, you can be yeah. naked in Instagram. What are you fighting for still? Like, why are you mm-hmm. so mad? Now when you see reality that, just like all the data that you have just talked about, it's the same here in, in Panama. Nurses are the front line right now and, and they're not even getting paid like literally, they the government just takes months to pay them. They're not even being paid monthly necessarily. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of social issues around that, and for sure, it's women who are the most affected by it, not males. Yeah, well, it's in the UK, women make up seventy seven percent frontline workers, and we make up sixty nine percent of the low paid. And yet we're doing sixty percent more unpaid labor than men. Yeah, uh-huh. that's horrible. Like in a lifetime, in in a, in a lifetime of humanity, that's mm-hmm. a sum up of uh, financial situation of women in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a major gaslighting happening of like, oh, if you just work harder, like if you just do. I don't even know or and then just the shame that's put on women too of if you don't balance everything um like if you don't work a job and you don't do all of the cooking and the cleaning and taking care if you have kids like taking care of the kids at home and then uh folding your husband's clothes and making sure that he's mentally stable and like all of that bs Mm -hmm. it's oh my gosh it's wild and yeah it has really been thrust to the forefront of everything with this pandemic Mm -hmm. like those differences I think have never been more highlighted kind of in modern memory like at least for us I feel like now I'm sure like our parents generation or before that are acutely aware of like seeing those differences constantly Um, yeah but I think for us the a lot of these things are like kind of very sinister in nature just like kind of under almost like just under the rug to the point where you're like is this happening? And then when you actually look at the numbers and the data, you're it's very clear. Um, yeah. This is not an accident. No. 
is, I mean, currently in the UK, uh, we, we have a marriage allowance, which talks about your tax rate. And, you know, you'll have people say that, I mean, in the UK, we are very lucky that we have national living wage, national minimum wage. So generally speaking, we do not see as big a pay gap in the UK because we have national minimums. However, we still have a very big pay gap when you get up to salary. But mm-hmm. our marriage allowance, it gives a me it gives the main wage earner, which is usually a man, it gives them a tax break. If your lower earner is earning eleven thousand five hundred pounds a year or less. So there's an incentive for women to work less and be in the home more and do all this unpaid labour because your man's getting a tax break, which mm-hmm. is only bolstering a gender pay dis- uh, pay gap. It, it's one of these kind of fantastic old rules and kind of, again, male incentives that exists that you wouldn't think of, you almost wouldn't believe. Oh, wow. I honestly agree with you what you said in the beginning about like it hasn't been malicious planned out that way. But some there are some situations that make me question like, well, there's people that have intentionally done some stuff. Um, And I just I just have this quick uh, story that I read about the the. smoking market so Mm -hmm. before women were legally allowed to smoke um because we were not and Mm -hmm. but it it was not like a thing if you if you do it then you'll see as you're pretending to be a man why do you want to smoke a cigarette if if that's like a man thing and then when feminism uh, came up in in the in the story some males, especially in the market in the market area, used the psychological knowledge that was being raised at that time, and they were like, "But how much women do we have in the world? Oh, and how many of them smoke? None of them. So we can get more money if we make them smoke. Let's take this feminist who now want to pretend to be a man." Let's offer them to smoke so they can buy cigarettes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's that was the logic of a man, obviously, planning out a market strategy just using the gender the gender based discrimination. It wasn't it wasn't because they wanted to include us in anything. It was just no. because we were numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh. Oh my gosh, so many, so many thoughts. I mean, my mind is still reeling from, um, yeah, just this, like, kind of what you're describing as, like, going back to the bit about uh, how doctors even came into mm-hmm. fruition, like, how this big pay, like pay gap has developed. And I think this is going to kind of lead into one of your other fields of expertise. But yeah, for so long, women were at the forefront of whether it was herbal medicine or on the front lines of nursing as they are now. But I mean, I mean, the UK has a really kind of grotesque history of burning medicine women as witches and being very Uh uh, like 
and then denying the validity of herbal medicine and just kind of demonizing these things that are uh, seen as, as, I guess, maybe like aspects of being feminine, of anything that is feminine, um, including then demonizing the medicine with which we use. And then that kind of leads into just present day when we think about like reproductive health care um Mm -hmm. you know like it used to be not that I'm saying like hearkening to the good old days because Mm -hmm. plenty of women have died in childbirth um but at the same time you know there was like communities of people and and like women in the communities who were passing down knowledge on like how to care for your body, not just how to care for your baby, but like how to care for you as you're, um, as you're going through pregnancy, or even like, if you don't plan to go through pregnancy, like going through menstruation, or (laughs) after pregnancy. And I'm like, literally, like these days, men who've like torn their Achilles, like get more treatment (laughs) than a woman who has just given birth to a baby Mm -hmm. like that's kind of the point we're at where it's basically seen as I don't even know if it's like that's too complex I don't want to go down there or like you ladies have got it like here's your baby and on you go um Mm -hmm. but I just wanted to kind of ask you like what kinds of things have you seen especially from like those pre and postnatal clients where you're like oh my god there is a huge knowledge gap here and like this huge sector of society is just not being served um, I had a client last year, um, kind of just pre-COVID, and we were we were having a quick chat. Um, she was a mother; her children at the t- they were teenagers. Let's put it. I think the youngest was maybe had just turned eleven or twelve, mm-hmm. and we were talking away. We were kind of setting up sessions. And uh, she mentioned that she was having surgery. And I was like, no worries, like, fine, blah, blah, blah. And a couple of questions later, um, her surgery was actually to pull her, her rectus abdominis back together, um, which mm-hmm. is kind of like your six pack area, um, because it had separated during childbirth. Now, it's very common. Um, yeah. it's called diastasis recti um, very common to have some during childbirth afterwards little uh, there's obviously there's exercises you can do um, it does come back together naturally however hers had split so far during her first pregnancy and I want to say her older child was about 14 it, it split so mm-hmm. far during her first pregnancy it didn't come back together so when she got pregnant the second time it was round basically her six-pack muscles were round by her obliques oh my god major surgery to pull them back together and what's sad about that too is like as a pilates like i'm also a postnatal postnatally trained Pilates teacher and there are lots of things that you can do that even like physical I mean you said not all physical therapists are trained in this way um, which is kind of crazy to me so so actually okay my mind's connecting a few things on my training which I did through APPI because they do 
They do physiotherapy, but they also do Pilates certifications. It is now hitting me how kind of strange it was that we were half Pilates teachers and then half um, physiotherapy. Is Milena, is that your dog? Yes, <laughs> yes. I am looking at him very, very, very closely because he wants to. Yeah, there are some birds outside and he's like, oh, I need to bark. I can like mm. hear him panting. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> He's very, very into. Oh no! I think what you're listening are the birds. Who, oh, yeah. okay. I couldn't and, tell which was which. No, no, yeah. he was. Yeah, he was like, <laughs> like closely, like, like he would, like he's a police, and he's like, "Cole, we got this intruder now." We like bark, 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 bark. <laughs> oh my god! I gotta Sorry. take care I of the to, house. We I can't allow to. birds here. Unpaid labor. Yeah, unpaid labor. <laughs> Unpaid. Well, he gets house and food. So. And yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> room Quick room room uh, I wish I can put like a video so you can see his face now. He's like, are you talking about me? <laughs> yes. yes. You are now a part of the podcast. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um. <laughs> but yeah, what I was, uh, I was like, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So I was doing this this training with APPI and half of us were Pilates teachers and the other half were physiotherapists. And like physiotherapy school, like that's a two year program in the UK. If, uh, if it's like at a master's level, it's a three year program in the US. And why? It, <laughs> why would you have to do a separate training for something that is so as we just discussed? extremely mm -hmm. common for people uh -huh. to go through like that's just kind of wild to me that they had to go outside of their schooling and if it's physiotherapy mm -hmm. school like it's a it's a recognized accredited usually like highly regarded university and you have to go yeah. outside of your school to receive the same training that like a pilates teacher like me or maybe a personal trainer like you is receiving yeah. That's wild. And also in doing that, we know that there are exercises and there are programs that you can do both pre and post to help prevent against you needing really invasive surgery. Mm -hmm. It was the thing, wild. I mean, I was shocked. I remember sitting there and I, I almost pride myself on my ability to control my face. Mm -hmm. I, I get yeah. told shocking things <laughs> on a daily basis. I can't, I'm quite I can't do that. I know, Milena and I yeah. are like, uh, that's a skill. Yeah. I do not that's a skill. That's a skill. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty good at that kind of like, um, the face is fine. My mind is reeling, <laughs> but the face is good. But I was here and I had to stop her. And I was like, no, wait a second. You give birth over mm. a decade ago. And you're just getting this fixed now. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't through lack of trying. She had seen her doctor several times over the years. And she'd always been told it's not an issue. And it, it, I mean, it's not life-threatening. We'll give you that. But that is a big issue. You have, you have muscle separation 
to the point that they're in a in an area they shouldn't be. Yeah. You know, if, if we all of a sudden had like a glute on a quad, we'd be doing something about that. Yeah. But the fact that it went completely unnoticed, and again, this kind of just opens up a whole other can of worms. Um again, after you give birth, you have your six weeks, you see your midwife, um I think we'll see terminology changes across the world. Uh, but you get obviously a medical appointment to check, you know, for diastasis recti, for any prolapse. Most of these appointments are more about how do you feel, what's going on, how are you recovering, you know, potentially checking any tearing, any scarring. Very rarely does it include an internal examination. So pelvic organ prolapse goes undiagnosed. I think um, I want to say in about 62% of pregnancies. Mm. And again, obviously you've got different levels of of prolapse. Some you will need surgery for, others you can fix with with exercise, some you can fix with with, um, pessaries. There are so many ways to deal with prolapse or with, with tearing. All these things that happen very common in childbirth you are pushing a child out let's not downplay that and yet you go see a medical professional six weeks after you've given birth and they'll take you at your word they won't check there is no internal or i mean you could argue external examination it Mm -hmm. is a conversation yeah. And most of them, it is aimed at how is baby. And yes. I'm, I'm not about to say, you know, baby should not have an appointment. Mum has gone through trauma. And that is so often disregarded. Because you now have a dependent. There is a young human who cannot take care of itself. And you are caregiver. Hopefully 50-50 caregiver. Mm-hmm. But your trauma is disregarded because of the baby. And those have equal weight. You know, yeah. childbirth is traumatic for some women. I I think I know of one one woman I've worked with whose birth went to plan. And again, I'm kind of taking that into account of you know, came early, came late, didn't quite make it to the hospital on time, all the kind of unplanned things that happen. But childbirth very rarely goes to plan for whatever reason. And it is traumatic. And yet there are, there are very little, particularly very, very little well-known, again, organisations, charities just help available yeah and i mean that then leads into the intersectionality of these things is then the people who do know to get help or who can afford to get extra help outside of just their six-week appointment with like in the u.s probably a gynecologist or here Mm -hmm. a midwife um then again then there's a whole range of women 
of different socioeconomic brackets of different like races and ethnicities who might not even get served like who might not even know to go anywhere Mm -hmm. or won't have the finances to go anywhere Mm -hmm. um and I mean that's the thing too about thinking about like reproductive system health is like yes it does it's it's obviously incredibly important for women who uh go through pregnancy or people who go through pregnancy. Um, But at the same time, I mean, these systems still exist in the bodies of people who do not become pregnant either. And there's a whole host of issues that then kind of stem from that, like kind of what you were saying, Milena, of going somewhere and having it attributed to something that it wasn't. I mean, pelvic floor problems can affect, can affect anybody. Um, Mm -hmm. especially as like, as you age, I mean, and then there's, if you bring in other areas of the reproductive system and just kind of pelvic floor health in general or breast cancer, um, regardless of whether you've had a baby or not, I mean, these, there really needs to be more, um, distributed knowledge around these things. This should not be like a three day course that physios have to take on the side of doing that I'm like what are you studying in school then like what are you doing (laughs) yeah Yeah. what's going on in there like I don't know (laughs) this feels like the one of the most important things you should be doing you Uh you I'm sorry you were gonna say something no 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 yeah because because Marjorie touched on a very sensitive point um about other ethnicities and that happens here in Panama um Mm -hmm. for example with indigenous with indigenous women uh, especially in there's a province was called Darien uh which is uh, where the most population of indigenous people remaining in the country are based and Marjorie you were there when we met Mm -hmm. um, through the brigades and so when I talked to these women about the rights, uh, they were always bringing up things that happened in the hospital when they were giving birth. So, for example, um, the doctors or the nurses choosing for them the type of of birth, um, and they not knowing until they wake up after a surgery, and they were like, "Wait, what happened? I wanted to have a natural birth." and uh, they they couldn't say anything. They couldn't pick anything. They get this. Um, I don't know the name for this in English right now, but it's like that they take the baby with like some type of tool and they press. You know, they hold that to take it out. It's, oh, I, don't I think remember. I know what you're talking about, but I don't know the name. Of yeah, it. it it has a a term, but that's that re- that that made. That, that could really harm the baby if you use that. Um, or if you're inducing the women into um, a, and yeah, like an induced sleep. And so mm-hmm. they, like, they, they just do it without asking at all. Nobody. <gasps> oh, my God. Yes. And then they wake up and they're like, wait, what, what happened? Where's my baby? Um, I don't know. Nobody told me anything. And that happens a lot. A lot, very, and also in the city too, and especially with the 
with the population that are more in risk because of um, because uh, of their economical circumstances, if they're considered to be poor, and if you're obviously a woman, and if you're indigenous, or if you're uh, if you're a black woman, then all of those things are just making it even harder for you. Um, because I had I had a friend, I have a friend who she gave birth in the public system, but she's Argentinian. So her skin mm -hmm. is 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 white. And she had to she told me that she had to use that influence in the hospital so she can be heard. And people yeah. was hearing her because she was Argentinian, not because she was a human being that deserved respect. Yeah. Uh, and that was like, and she was like, well, thank, thank someone that I could do that because there are many women that cannot do that, especially mm -hmm. in Panama where the population is not mainly light skin. It's the opposite. And so it's, yeah, it, it, it is like even, even socially, we, well, I, I include myself because I'm part of society, but that not necessarily because I think like that, but People, people seeing light skinned people as, as you know, like authority, like, like they're better or they look better. It's, it's the, the it's, so it happens too in the hospitals. It's just like, oh, what was yeah. your skin color? Oh, let me treat you this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like horror film. My God. Uh, yes, yes, yes. It is. It's a very. I don't even want to call it a popular misconception but it is well known and again I use that very cautiously it is well perpetuated shall we say yeah. that black women do not feel pain as white women do in the UK four to five um, sorry four to five black women will die in pregnancy. Sorry, they're four to five times more likely to die in pregnancy than white women. Wow. wow. Pakistani women in the UK are more likely to die in childbirth in the UK than they are in Pakistan, which is one of the most fragmented healthcare systems in the world. Wow. Oh which is, it is disgusting. It, it is, is disgusting. systemic racism. Yeah. It's very hard. Yeah. Yeah. So many different layers, layers to this, just like how intersectional all of these different issues become. Um, yeah. And just so important to, to keep kind of bringing to the forefront of the conversation so that healthcare can be safe for, for all women, for all genders, for, for everyone. Um, and that everybody can have access to, to taking care of themselves, you know? Yeah. You know, just having that. But mm -hmm. I, I have a question. It's, and this is for our listeners, because I know we, we, we have this so necessary talk. Um, I hope everyone, everyone can enjoy and have their own thoughts. So I, I have this question now for just to, to give something back to the listeners that we have. What were some recommendations for our pelvic area that you would like to share with us? Like, they're very important, like super key points that you're like, 
you need to be doing this in order to keep your pelvic floor healthy? Um, so I would say the best way to kind of think about pelvic health, it's something we should all be doing. Um, just imagine, again, thinking about the way you breathe is very important. And if you can imagine, if you imagine your vagina as an accordion. All right. And Ooh, as you I inhale, <laughs> I'm like, this is what I'm doing together. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'm in, I'm in now. <laughs> <laughs> is as you inhale, so on every inhale, you want to imagine that accordion lifting, and as you exhale, it compresses again. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, Marjorie, are you <laughs> trying to at the same time? Yeah. <laughs> I, think I, could, like, I could like hear us breathing in. <laughs> We're finding it. We're finding our accordions. So that's a great cue because I'm always, I mean, as a practitioner, I'm always struggling to figure out uh, good cues for people to, to like kind of help them find that, that Kegeling. Uh -huh. Uh, mechanism. Yeah. So, like, I've heard things like suction blueberries up through your tailbone, or find your egg, <laughs> find your egg and hold it. Yeah. What? <laughs> but I like the accordion. I think the accordion yeah. today is the best visual I've had recently. I love it. That's I great. love it. Yes. Yeah. And it's, again, for male listeners, imagine your testicles as an accordion. Mm -hmm. It works exactly the same. Again, I think the two that I. I tend to stick with again the accordion and then nuts to guts. That? <laughs> That's I my male that. one. Nuts yes. to guts. So for our <laughs> listeners, our listeners with with testicles, it's nuts to guts, and our listeners with vaginas, it's the accordion. That's amazing. <laughs> that it is, is knowing knowing your normal is yeah. the most important thing. Because, you know, if there's one thing I, I feel like I'm up on my high horse about recently is language and the way we use language. Normal versus common. Those don't mean the same things. Right. Mm. If it's normal, it happens to most people and we don't need to worry about it. If it's common, it's abnormal, but it still happens to a lot of people. So to go back to the UTI example, UTIs are common in women. We have a smaller urethra, so we're more likely to experience UTIs. It doesn't mean it's normal. Right. It still needs antibiotics. Yeah. It still needs treatment. <laughs> Such a good point. But lots of women have them. Yeah. But at the same time, it is still an infection. It is abnormal. But there is still this, you know, oh, it's normal for women to get UTIs. No, it's common. Mm -hmm. right. like heavy period, painful periods. Oh, it's normal. No, it's common. And I, I think it. that the, the language that we use, particularly when it comes to women's health, whether, I mean, health in general, just using the correct language makes such a difference. Mm -hmm. And being able to kind of advocate for yourself to say, this is my normal. I understand it's common, but it is abnormal. 
and something needs to be done. I like that focus. That's beautiful. I think that's that's a really great place to I think to kind of wrap things up. That's yeah. I'm definitely going to be practicing my accordion playing. Of course. Getting getting to and I love I love that last point about being really mindful about the language that we're using and really listening very carefully to the language that the medical practitioners in our lives are using Mm -hmm. and working together we can uh call them out on it and hopefully enact some some kind of change with with a podcast like this and with hopefully the knowledge (laughs) that our our listeners will come away with feeling a little more empowered Mm -hmm. about yeah thank you so much beth you're the best thank you thank you so much this is amazing and it was amazing yeah for being our first guest as yeah. well. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so many, so many valuable insights. And um, yeah, so I hope you have a really great rest of your day. And to our listeners, I hope you all have a wonderful and beautiful rest of your day wherever you are. Be safe and be well. And we'll have a new episode for you soon. Sending much love. Thank you all. all right. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.